You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. our own little escapes in life. Reading a book can be an escape into fantasy. A walk in the country is an escape from the city. And in this modern world, most of us escape into the online world in various ways too. Whether it's a discussion forum, a virtual online game, these little escapes allow us to recharge our batteries from the real world. But the Twilight Zone has always asked the question, what if your desire or need for escape grows bigger than your desire or need to stay where you are? Gart Williams wanted to escape to Willoughby. Martin Sloan wanted to escape to his childhood. And tonight we'll meet a man who joins the ranks of these Twilight Zone great escapers. But while he himself is as humble and as mild-mannered as the show's lead characters come. To tell this story, we'll also tell the story of how tonight's episode actually escaped from our television screens for several decades, until it made a most colourful return. And when we meet our main character Charlie Parks, his existence seems to be anything but colourful. The camera pans in on his office, and we see how he blends in with every other man, decked out in a white shirt and tie, sat behind identical typewriters. And when we see Charlie visit a local museum and try and swim against the tide of the other visitors, only to be swept along with them against his will, we start to realise that even in these opening seconds, we're seeing exactly how Charlie Parks lives his life, forever wanting to go his own way, or carried along by a world that wants him to go the same way as everybody else. So where does a man like Charlie Parks go to escape? Well, let's find out in miniature. To the average person, a museum is a place of knowledge, a place of beauty and truth and wonder. Some people come to study, others to contemplate, others to look for the sheer joy of looking. Charlie Parks has his own reasons. He comes to the museum to get away from the world. It isn't really the 60 cent cafeteria meal that has drawn him here every day. It's the fact that here in these strange, cool halls, he can be alone for a little while, really and truly alone. Anyway, that's how it was before he got lost and wandered in to the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 21st, 1963, written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Walter Grauman. Now I have to mention before we get into anything else 
how beautifully constructed the pre-narration opening is. It tells us everything we need to know about Charlie in a couple of minutes. We find him sitting in the office with everyone who is dressed just exactly like him. Then when he leaves work and goes to the museum, he's trying to climb the stairs, but he just gets carried along by the crowd. And even when the crowd stops, he's uncomfortable and agitated within them before he manages to escape them and finds his sanctuary in this Victorian room. It says everything, and I'm not sure whether that was all in Beaumont's script or whether it was the director's decision, but it is just a perfect use of imagery to really tell us who Charlie is and what his struggle is. And we'll come back to that later on, but I think Serling must have recognised how well constructed this was, because in his unused extended trailer that would have went at the end of the last episode, Jess Bell, he says this. This one we find ourselves hard-pressed to describe without telegraphing to you what are the rather unusual set of circumstances that you'll find yourself watching. Let's just say by way of rather selectively controlled introduction, that miniature takes us into a brand new realm of science fiction and fantasy that is at the same time intriguing and strangely believable. So where he says there the selectively controlled introduction, he seems to be recognising what that opening is. So here's a name that we haven't heard before in the Twilight Zone, the director... Walter Grauman, or Walter E. Grauman, as he's credited here. And he is one of our one-time directors in the show. And he was born in 1922 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And he's one of the people of this time who, because of when they were born, have this aspect to their lives that always fascinates me. He served in World War II and was highly decorated after having flown 56 missions in the war. So what does a man like that do when he comes back? Well, he gets into television. I think what I like about stories like his is that nowadays, just getting a job in television seems to be an impossibility. It's not something you can just walk into. But he took some of the jobs on the periphery of the business, like being an agent's assistant or working in the publicity department of Universal Studios, so he had that real aspect to him where he just got stuck into the business, he paid his dues, and he took opportunities when they presented themselves. And one of those opportunities was to become a stage manager at NBC, where he co-created the popular talent show Lights Camera Action, which featured, among others, a young Leonard Nimoy. And from then on, he tried his hand at directing and never looked back. Now he has a very respectable 84 directing credits to his name, but when you drill down into that, you really see that from his humble beginnings, he really did become a hard-working director of the day. He directed 23 episodes of Matinee Theatre, 21 episodes of The Untouchables, 49 episodes of Barnaby Jones, and he helmed several television movies, and then to finish his career, he directed 53 episodes 
of Merdashi wrote, so he really was a very prolific director. And he lived a good long life, passing away at the age of 93 in 2015. Uh, excuse me. Oh, yes, sir. I guess this may sound silly, but how do they manage that? How do they manage what? Uh, in there, in the glass case. Oh, well, I couldn't say exactly. I know they use magnifying glasses, little tiny tools, single hair brushes, things like that. But mostly they keep at the job until they get things right. But how do they get the girl to move? Uh, transistors? How's that? The girl playing the piano. What stopped now? So Charlie seems to believe that the figure of the woman in the doll's house is moving and playing the piano, and the man who plays the guard in the museum, who is responding in disbelief, is one of those more under-the-radar Twilight Zone multi-episode players. And he is the actor, John McLean. In the episode The Shelter, he plays Man. In The Midnight Sun, he plays Cop. In this one, he is the guard. And in the future episode Uncle Simon, he once again plays Cop. And I like his presence here, and I guess he has one of those faces that blends into whatever show he does without being too overpowering. I think he really was a true bit part player. Because if you look through his credits, there are many instances where he will play four or five different bit parts in the same show. For example, in the show The Virginian, that ran between 1965 and 1970, he played characters called John Pierce, Ebden McDevitt, Carol O'Neill, Eb Smalley, and Parker. But his career is literally littered with these instances, and this is probably what helped him become truly one of our hard-working actors of the day with 175 credits. Sit down, Mr. Parks. I'm uh, sorry I'm late, sir. Well, I'm sure you have a good excuse. Well, no, sir, I don't. I just let the time slip by. I don't know how it happened. You know, Parks, this is the first sign of humanity you've shown in almost four years. I beg pardon? Well, up until now, you've come and gone like some kind of wind-up toy. You're never early, you're never late, you're always keeping to yourself. Don't you like us, Parks? Uh, well, I never thought about it, sir. You know, I'm afraid, Mr. Parks, that isn't good enough. An office uh, is like a team, a platoon. Either it works together or it doesn't. Here it doesn't, and the reason is you. I knew you were a square peg when I hired you, but you were bright, and, well, I thought we'd wear those edges off. We haven't. None of them. You're still a square peg. You understand me? Yes, sir, I think I do. I was gonna use the excuse of your being late, but I can't. The fact is that I'm letting you go because you just don't fit in. And here we have another one of the Twilight Zone's most recognizable bit players, Barney Phillips, in his fourth and final Twilight Zone episode. And we all remember him for that iconic image from Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, where he reveals the third eye in his forehead. But he was also in A Thing About Machines, 
and the Purple Testament. So when he escaped from the Twilight Zone, where did he go next? Well, he really just was one of our hard-working actors of the day, with 177 credits to his name. So he just carried on doing his thing, and he was naturally a supporting player, not really a leading man, so he mainly went on to one-off appearances, but there were the occasional recurring parts like in the short-lived Betty White show in 1977, or a couple of appearances in the Dukes of Hazard in the 80s. But he did get a title role of sorts in the late 60s when he voiced the genie Shazan in the Hanna-Barbera cartoon of the same name. And it's one of those cartoons that never really caught on. Its concept is a little convoluted, and none of the characters apart from Jazan himself really stand out. But at least he got top billing for once. I warn you, evil one, return to the bottle. <laughs> no, Shazan. It is now your turn. In 4,000 years, I have acquired much evil magic. Like this? No! Like this! Sadly, Barney Phillips passed away from cancer in 1982 at the age of 68. So Barney, for your services to the Twilight Zone and for providing us with one of the most enduring and iconic images of the show, we salute you. But his final act in the Twilight Zone is firing poor old Charlie because he doesn't fit in. And while we kind of got that idea already, this is really where the episode begins to show us what Charlie has to contend with in his life. Now I'm not going to step through this episode in the usual way that I do because I feel it's not so much an episode of twists and turns as it is an episode that just continually reinforces the point of it. And I think we get the point of it pretty quickly so it kind of turns into more of a character study than an episode that has lots of twists and turns to it. So not only does Charlie have to contend with getting fired for not fitting in, but he also has to contend with a mother who obviously loves him, but seems to cut him down constantly, even when she's trying to be kind. Why can't you keep a job, son? Why do you always end up making everyone feel uncomfortable around you? I don't know. I suppose they blame me. Well, I'm not keeping you here. You're free to go. I know that, Mother. Nothing in the world would make me happier than to see you settle down with a nice girl, raise a family, and live a normal life. Please don't cry. I can't help it. I hate to see you hurt, son. I'm not hurt. Well, you should be getting fired. It would have killed your father. It would have killed him. I'll go to the employment bureau tomorrow. 
Where are you going? To my room. Charlie, will you please bring me my heart medicine, dear? So on the one hand, she is saying that he's free to go at any time. But on the other hand, within minutes of saying that, she's asking him to get her heart medicine for her. She would probably always deny it. She wants him to be dependent on her, and she is also dependent on him, even if she doesn't really need to be. Now, Charlie's sister, Myra, is played by Barbara Barry, and she very much knows what their mother is like, and a few glances at the breakfast table confirm that. Hey! Hiya, Charlie boy! Hello, buddy. How are you? Couldn't be better, buddy. Couldn't be better. Myra, you're looking good. Well, I wish I could say the same to you, Charlie. Well, I haven't been sleeping too well. Because of what? The job? Yes, I suppose so. It's been terribly hard on him walking around every day in the hot sun. Boy, that can get you down. Charlie. Yes? We've got a surprise for you. Tell him, bud. Well, it's like this, Charlie. I heard about them giving you the roust. I, I mean, you know. And, uh, like, I know the head dispatcher pretty well over where I work. And I talked to him about you, and he said, uh... Well, oh, he said he'd give you the job. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? So Myra very much has the best of intentions for her brother, and she is genuinely trying to help. But the problem is, she is also putting her expectations on Charlie, wanting him to do things because that's the normal thing to do. Look, Charlie, I don't know anything about uh, psychology or anything like that. But I think I know what's the matter with you. You need a girl. You're at that time of life. You know what I mean? Well, not exactly. Well, it's uh, a little difficult to explain. But you've never had a girl, have you, Charlie? Well, not actually. That's what I thought. Well, we are going to change all of that. How? I am going to introduce you to Harriet Gunderson. She's a girl who works in my office, and she's a real swell kid. You'll like her, Charlie, really. Myra. Oh, please, Charlie. Just this one time. Try. For me, huh? And if you do, I promise you I'll never bother you again. All right. So this, to me, is the equivalent of when two people have been seeing each other for a while, and then the questions start. So when are you getting married? And if they do get married, so when are you having a baby? And it never seems to be phrased, so do you think you'll get married someday? Or do you think you'll have a baby someday? It's usually that expectation that, of course you'll do these things, because everybody does these things. Heaven forbid the two people might just want to enjoy being in a relationship together without marriage and kids, or even that they might just want to remain single. So while Charlie might attract all of this because of how everyone perceives him as being different, 
I think that what Charles Beaumont is really getting at here is something we all face, and if we're honest with ourselves, something that we probably participate in as well, to varying degrees. Trying to wrestle other people into our idea of what they should be like, and what our idea of normal is. So while Charlie listens to everyone else's opinion on how he should live his life, let's meet the man who played him. Here we have one of those times where the Twilight Zone gave us someone who would go on to be a big name in Hollywood, the great Robert Duvall. And I think when names like Dennis Hopper or Charles Bronson come up in the zone, we all pretty much know where they ended up, but it's more interesting to me to see where they were at this point when they came onto the show. So this is only Robert Duvall's 13th screen credit, with the first being in 1960, so in terms of television work, he was still pretty fresh out of the box. Although he had a two-year stint in the army, he then went on to study at the New York Neighborhood Playhouse in 1955. So around this time, you have the likes of Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, all making their start. All of these actors who would go on to become huge and ride the wave of the 60s and 70s cinema revolution. Now one of those credits before The Twilight Zone is another outsider role for him, when Robert Duvall played Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, with Twilight Zone alumni William Wyndham, who appears as the Doctor in this very episode, and was also in Five Characters in Search of an Exit, and Frank Overton, who's from Mute and Walking Distance, but it was very much one of the stepping stones in Duvall's journey. He hadn't truly made it yet, so he became one of those hard-working actors of the day, with parts in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Outer Limits, and many other shows in the 1960s. So he went along in the 60s with parts in run-of-the-mill shows like CBS Playhouse, but then the 70s begin with roles like Major Frank Burns in M.A.S.H. and Tom Hagen in The Godfather, and then the Robert Duvall that we know today was born. So how is he in this? I think this is an early indication of just what a great actor Robert Duvall is. His portrayal of Charlie Parks is, I find, a very sensitive one, and it's someone who just doesn't fit in. And in a way, it's quite ahead of its time because it does remind me of some of the characteristics of those people who might now be diagnosed with Asperger's. And the slight discomfort around other people and the general impression that he sees the world in a different way really kind of feeds into that. Now this might just be coincidental and it might just be that he's playing an introverted man, but I think there's definitely something to think about there. And he is definitely one of the Twilight Zone's unique people. But there are some clues here. After he's fired and his mother is asking him about it, he says, he didn't think I fit in. And she says, what does that mean? To which he responds, it has something to do with being on the team. He just doesn't seem to understand it. Now in The Twilight Zone Companion, the writer William F. Nolan says, 
I consider it Beaumont's best script, period. He said it was based on me. It was about a kind of shy guy who had problems with women, which I've always had. I've never been a womanizer. Now I wish I could find something documented about how Robert Duvall approached this role because he is so deliberate in choosing Charlie's mannerisms. That smile that he has that's kind of slightly crooked. It's very pure, but not gratuitous. He's very careful in his portrayal. And for me, he is the thing that holds all of this together because it is a season four episode. 52 minutes long and while the episode length hasn't bothered me much this season do I think that this one could have got all its points across with maybe 15 or 20 minutes cut from the running time I think it probably could but the thing that keeps me transfixed is the performance of Robert Duvall and a script filled with a lot of truth by Charles Beaumont so I'm not really waiting for the twist because I think we can all guess what it's going to be. I'm just enjoying this character study. Now on the subject of the script, in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. writes, In mid-July 1962, Charles Beaumont submitted the script to Herbert Hirschman, who then sent the script to sailing during the last few days of July. I would be interested in getting your reaction, Hirschman commented. Charlie impressed upon me that this is not necessarily the accurate framework of the script, but just a reassurance that there is enough material for an hour. Considering my regard for his writing ability, I would be inclined to agree. I would like your reaction to the story, however. And Rod Sailing replied, I hope you put Charles to work immediately. I have a couple of concerns that are minor, but knowing his talent, I think these will be ironed out in the script. Now one of the interesting things that it also says is that the rough cut of the episode was seven to eight hundred feet over length, and Sailing had to choose the scenes that needed to be edited to fit the television schedule. So it's kind of amazing to me that this was actually longer in its raw, uncut form, because what exactly could Charles Beaumont have been putting in it? Good morning. My mother says that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Have I told you about my mother? She's uh, very nice. Of course, she still treats me like a child, but you can't blame her because I'm all she has. I suppose that's not very much. Of course, it isn't any of my business, but I really do think you should eat more than that for breakfast. Oh, you know, I have a sister about your age. Her name's Myra. She's nice, too. And her husband says she's very pretty, but she's not as pretty as you are. I guess you're about the prettiest girl in the whole world. I don't mind saying that because I know you can't hear me. But I think I'd say it even if you could because <clears throat> Charlie's escape from expectation and well-meaning but suffocating advice is of course going to the doll's house in the museum where he's formed an attraction 
to one of the dolls in it, who appears to him as a beautiful young woman. And it's kind of interesting in this scene in particular that Charlie starts by telling her that she should eat more for breakfast. And it's the kind of thing that his mother would say to him. Is he just mimicking what he thinks normal interactions are like? So let's talk about the doll's house because they've made the decision to have the face of it be some sort of projected screen so that they can show people moving around in it but within the fiction of the episode it's glass covered as it might be in a museum to stop people taking the things out of it so does it look real probably not is it a problem i don't think so i think we just have to understand when it was made and go with it but i also think it just gives a, a slightly magical quality too and i suppose we can rationalize it to ourselves that that's how Charlie sees it, I don't know, but it's not a problem for me. And Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion writes, Throughout miniature, Charlie Parks visits the doll's house and watches a pantomime melodrama unfold as the girl is served by her maid and courted by a suitor whose intentions are most assuredly not honourable. In order to accomplish this, a four-room dollhouse and a full-size identical replica were constructed. It was expensive, but well worth the effort. And Martin Grams Jr. adds to this with a production note that he puts in his book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and it reads, The miniature house should be arranged so that the three rooms, parlour, bedroom, living room, may be fully depicted, while all other rooms are either eliminated or barely indicated. When we are dealing with scenes within the house, the feeling should be that of a model magnified. The action within the house must be highly stylized at all times, danced or pantomimed rather than acted. The point is to provide a sharp contrast with the real world with which the protagonist cannot cope. Therefore, the more stylized the house itself, the better. So the action within the house, like the notes say, is all very much like a silent movie. Nobody talks, and this situation plays out throughout the episode where a moustache-twirling villain tries to impose himself on the beautiful young woman. It's all very binary and black and white and simple, and there are none of the nuances that Charlie can't get to grips with in this world, in the real world, in the dollhouse. The good people are good, the bad people are bad, and there's nothing taxing to do. Just sit and listen to harpsichord music. So I really like this detail about it. It really shows that Beaumont is the master of stuff like that. It's not just a guy escaping to the doll's house just as some device for his escape. It's a perfect representation of the simple life that he really needs. Now the doll is played by a woman called Claire Griswold and she only had a short acting career that began on screen in 1958 and ended with only 20 credits in an episode of Bonanza in 1967. Claire's acting coach was the actor and director and also Twilight Zone alumni, Sidney Pollock, who we saw in The Trouble with Templeton. 
They married and in 1967, she retired from acting to raise their family. So in this miniature world, the doll is taken upstairs by this evil suitor, which causes Charlie to break the glass on the front of the house. And when he tries to explain it to the guard, poor old Charlie ends up in a psychiatric hospital under the care of Dr. Wallman, played by Twilight Zone and Night Gallery star William Wyndham. Now, Mr. Parks, I want you to understand that no one is saying you didn't see these things. There's no doubt that you did. But you must realize that you saw them only in your mind. They were real to you. They were. That's the way it is with hallucination. Ordinarily, the eye sees and transmits a picture to the brain. But sometimes that's reversed. In certain cases, the brain sees and transmits its message to the eye. Do you understand? No. They were real. In that case, others would have seen them too. Isn't that so? I don't know. It's logical, isn't it? I suppose so. But no one did see them. Now, how do you explain that? I don't know. So while Charlie is locked away in the hospital, let's have a look at the thing that kept miniature locked away from television screens for many, many years. Now, Martin Grams Jr. has a very lengthy entry about the legal struggles that this episode went on to have. Now, I won't read all of it because it is quite extensive, but what he says is, on March 25th, 1963, David Lenz of the law offices of Lenz and Janga in Los Angeles, California, submitted a letter addressed to Sam Kaplan of Ashley Steiner, asserting a claim of plagiarism and wrongful appropriation against Cayuga Productions. Mr. Lenz made the claim on behalf of his client, Clyde Ware, whose two-act script titled The Thirteenth Mannequin, originally written for a half-hour format, had been submitted to Cayuga Productions in the spring of 1961. And Martin Grams Jr. goes on to describe the story like this. The story was about a character called The Old Man, who lived with his daughter Louise and son-in-law Bill Dixon and worked as a night watchman in a department store which had a display of 12 mannequins grouped and costumed as members of a community. The old man spent his working hours talking to the plastic figures as if they were friends of equal stature. As the night watchman, he was granted the privacy no other employee of the department store had during the overnight hours. Louise and Bill were kind to the old man, but questioning his mental health made arrangements for him to be committed. Late one evening, after leaving for work, the old man discovers that Bill has phoned for the family doctor to ensure the commitment papers are in line. The old man is fully aware of their intentions. He proceeds to consult with his friends, the mannequins. By the morning, the old man has strained his heart to the breaking point and collapses. His body is found on the floor. Bill and the doctor examine the old man, shaking their heads. A few minutes later, they are shocked to see workmen delivering a 13th mannequin, a grandfather figure, reminiscent of the old man, set to join the ranks of his friends. 
Now, it's one of those times where you kind of hear what the Twilight Zone was being accused of, and you hear the premise of that story, and you think, and you think, how did this even get past square one? You know, a lot of these claims just seem to be so ridiculous, and I think that one does too. And as Martin Grams Jr., or maybe Mark Zickery points out, if he was going to make a claim on anything, it should probably be the after hours. But thankfully, this legal challenge didn't actually go anywhere, and the court decided in sailing and the Twilight Zone's favour. But the thing is, CBS, who now own the show, kind of felt that it soured this episode, and it didn't see the light of day again until 1984. And when it was aired in 1984, they did something a little special. They colorized all of the dollhouse scenes within the house. So Charlie's world was in black and white, but what was going on within the house was in color. Now, they're easy to find these colored scenes. I think they might be on the DVD and Blu-rays and they are what they are. It's a gimmick. And because they're not really cleaned up, all we get is this kind of muddy looking color within a black and white show. So I don't think it really has an amazing effect, but it's a curio. It's a curio that is quite interesting. So it's nice that it exists. So in the end, Charlie Parks makes his escape into the doll's house where he can now spend his days sitting with his doll beloved looking at some kind of vintage Viewmaster. Now, as I mentioned before, I think we do feel the length of this episode somewhat. It is 51 minutes long. And I will concede that you could probably pretty easily cut this one down by just lifting out scenes wholesale and probably still get what it's all about. But for me, this longer running time really allows us to spend some time with Charlie and to understand him. It's a character study, a gentle study of a gentle man, a man who would probably find his own place in the world, his own equilibrium, if everyone would just leave him alone and stop imposing on him what they think he needs, what they think will make him better. Because the truth is, there's nothing wrong with Charlie. There's nothing to make better. He's just different. But he lives in a world where different is unacceptable. Our world. And this isn't some heightened reality like Eye of the Beholder. Beaumont is writing a lot of truth here. Anyone who has decided to pursue an unusual career choice or dress in a particular way or any myriad of things that don't fall under that oh-so-mundane category of normal, knows what it's like to be Charlie. So what we get here is a mixture of Twilight Zone ingredients, a Twilight Zone outsider like Mr. Beavis. We get the escape of Willoughby without the tragic consequences. And I think while it is derivative of other Twilight Zones, the combination of Robert Duval and this unique aspect of the doll's house really make for quite a special episode. I'm tempted to actually put it on the top tier, but if we look at season 4 on its own, I would certainly put it in the top tier of this season. But what it does have that is especially unique to this episode is a sweet ending. When we see the smile on the guard's face 
as he watches Charlie, happy and contented, in the house, along with the narration from Sailing that he never told anyone what he saw, and it's one of the most sweet and satisfying endings in the show for me. An escape into happiness, an escape into the twilight zone. They never found Charlie Parks because the guard didn't tell them what he saw in the glass case. He knew what they'd say and he knew they'd be right too. Because seeing is not always believing. Especially if what you see happens to be an odd corner of the Twilight Zone. I enjoyed New Twilight Zone this year, but it's always nice to come back to classic Twilight Zone as well. uh, With with a very sweet episode from season four. So I like to get it out quickly after the new Twilight Zone finishes just to reward the patience of the people who haven't really been watching along with the new show. So if you're just coming back, thank you for your patience and I appreciate you coming back. Over in the After Hours Club, we have a couple of new members. We have one of the board of directors, Chad Koslowski. So welcome and thank you for contributing and also Azra Eileen thank you so much for becoming a member of the After Hours Club and also I can't remember whether I mentioned Ben Kirkham last time if I didn't he's now a member of the After Hours Club too so thank you so much and if you want to join the club and get podcasts about the 80s Twilight Zone vintage sailing night gallery and a number of other things then please do head over to patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast so no listener feedback this time around because i've kind of snuck this one out after new twilight zone so i will end it there if you want to get your thoughts in about any of the episodes of season four so far or the next one then email a clip to tom at the twilight zone podcast.com and let's go over to rod sailing to find out what's coming up next Some rather special ingredients to a bizarre brew served up next on the Twilight Zone. An oddball printing press and editor with a stringer from the lower regions. They're just a few as we bring you Robert Sterling, Patricia Crowley, and special guest star Burgess Meredith in Charles Beaumont's Printer's Devil. What's the matter? Matter? Why did you quit? Finished. Why would a man with your talent want to work for a hick paper like the Courier? Call it a challenge. Oh, Miss Benson, are you impressed? No, I'm amazed. It's understandable. Well, I must uh, confess that this is not my true vocation. It isn't? No, I'm a reporter. Oh. Some people have a green thumb. I have a green nose. Wherever there is news, this old nose smells it. Well, I'm afraid there isn't that much news to smell around Dansburg, Mr. Smith. There will be. (laughs) 